Father, we sing Hosanna to you as they sang years ago as you entered the city, Father. Father, they didn't know you as we know you because you dwell in us. We know you as the risen Savior. They saw you as the conquering King. But Father, we worship you tonight. You are our Hosanna. You are God with us, the God who saves. So Father, we praise you. Father, as we look into your word, as we delve into it, speak to our hearts and take away anything there that is not of Christ and make us more like him, we ask for the sake of your Son, in Jesus' name we pray. Tell you what, I um, I've been doing some some cleaning in the garage, and uh, and and so we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, but uh, but let's go back. Last week we were celebrating Passover, right? And um, we're we're about to move all the way to the point. I, I'll give you a brief synopsis here. We're gonna move all the way from the end of Passover tonight, all the way to placing Jesus in the tomb. All right, that's how much ground we're going to cover. That's a lot of ground. That's a lot of we're going to read a lot of verses. And I hope it's it's okay with you guys if if we we don't like do lots and lots of video tonight. I'm you know in in the in 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 the last several years, I think it's been very common to do a whole lot of video, right? Uh, Passion of the Christ, all kinds of different scenes and everything and kind of in our mind kind of get a picture. And if it's okay with you, I chose to just kind of set the stage by just reading it tonight. Is that all right? I hope it is, because that's all I'm doing. And uh, and so we're going to read it, and we're going to unpack it a little bit. And uh, as we do, uh, my prayer is that uh, this experience uh, would 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 move in us in some in some in some specific ways tonight. Um, but we were we were in the upper room. We read uh, as uh, Jesus was betrayed by Ju- Judas and abandoned by the disciples and taken into custody, right, by the authorities. And as we pick up the story, it's late in the evening. And uh, what I wanted you to keep in the back of your mind as this this track that's like running as we go through this tonight is 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 this one particular context. And that's that when the sun comes up in the morning, the Jews will be celebrating another feast. And it's the feast of unleavened bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is closely related to Passover. It just doesn't get mentioned nearly as much. As a matter of fact, I would say I went through a large portion of my church life and don't remember many people ever talking that much about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the two are linked oftentimes in Jewish culture as really one uh, one thought of as one feast. But Passover's on one day. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread is seven consecutive days. And in that total eight-day celebration period, what are they doing? They are celebrating, right, the um, the Israelites' exodus. The Passover helps Israel remember how God delivered them. And then the Feast of the Unleavened Bread helps Israel remember how quickly they left, right? That they didn't have time to put the leaven in their bread for it to rise. And so those two feasts, together become very, very, very important for us tonight. Now, next Saturday night, 
we're going to experience the uh, the glow-in-the-dark Easter egg hunt. And I don't know if you did the whole Easter egg hunt thing when you were little. I did, but I don't remember doing the whole plastic thing, put stuff inside of it. Did y'all do that when you were real little? I remember hunting real eggs. I remember I remember hunting real eggs and then losing track of a couple of them. And after a week or so, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't remember, like, parents, like, stuffing. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm on that were just cheap. But I don't remember putting money in eggs and stuff. I just don't remember that at all. Uh, but, you know, we do that. And then it's like the evolution of the Easter egg hunt, right? It's like, all right, so they're real, real, real small, and we put the egg right in front of them. I remember doing that with our kids, right? We, and, then, and then they get a little bit older, and you put it in the grass a little bit farther, and it's like, where's the eggs? And, you're like, oh. and then you put them a little bit. And then finally, you, it evolves to the point where I, I remember we, we were hunting them, and, and, and my dad thought it was fun to, like, dig holes in the yard and put the eggs in. Right. Uh, tape eggs to the to the to the to the branches in the trees. And, you know, eventually the egg the egg hunt ends when all the eggs are found or when when one said brother falls out of the tree and hurts himself. I'm not I won't go there, but uh, lots of crazy things happen. Right. Well, it, it's all in the hunt. You say, well, what does that have to do? Well, it, I'm not even going there with any sort of pagan ritual or anything like that. I'm saying it's crazy how that hunt actually dives us right into this specific feast. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread commences with a search of its own. But it's not a search for eggs. It's a search for leaven. It's a search for for yeast. And what would happen is in this symbolic act, the mom of the house would take lumps of leaven and just put it all over the house, all, all, all over different rooms. And then the dad would come in. This is the first day of the feast, right? And he would go looking for all of the yeast, all of the leaven and sweep it all out of the house. He'd sweep and just and make sure there wasn't one single trace of leaven anywhere. And as a matter of fact, what they would eventually do, they would burn all of the leaven so that it wasn't just out of the house. It was gone for good, free of leaven. The next seven days, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was an amazing event, not just because it reminded them of the Exodus, but leaven became known for what? It became known for sin. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, as they were certainly cleansing Israel's house physically from leaven, it was also this cleansing from sin, this symbolic act that they were doing. Now, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we jump into the passage. 53, chapter 4, sorry, chapter 14 of Mark. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes convened. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest courtyard. He was sitting with the temple police, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could find none. For many were giving false testimony against him, but the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and were giving false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will demolish this sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer anything. 
Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, Prophesy. The temple police also took him and slapped him. Here's what I want to do. Um, Mark gives us some insight here, but what I want to do is walk you through these episodes and tie the Gospels together because each one has some unique accounts here. And it starts to give us this clearer picture of what's happening. So there's some accounts in both Matthew, Luke, and John that I think are going to help us out. But Jesus is, is basically arrested, right? And he's taken back to the Kidron, through the Kidron Valley, back into Jerusalem, to the steps of Caiaphas' home. And our, you know, our system of justice is what? Our system of justice is innocent until proven guilty, right? In this kangaroo court that they've created, what they've decided to do is their system was totally different. Theirs is, he's guilty, now let's figure out a way to show that that's what he is. First, he goes to Annas. And he's, he's kind of like the high priest emeritus, right? And, uh, and, and he was actually the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. And the investigation started there. That's where Jesus is actually struck in the face. And then he has moved to Caiaphas. And witnesses are interviewed. And testimonies start to conflict with each other. And probably all these witnesses were on call, right? They're like, hey, this is going to happen. We're going to have Jesus in custody. Just chill. Sit back. We'll call you when we're ready. They were probably pretty shocked that they were being called during the feast, during Passover. But here, you know, here they are. They're, they're, they're ready. The only problem is they should have corroborated their stories a little bit better because it was in conflict and everything just got thrown out. And the conversation for a bit starts to center around this misunderstanding because Jesus starts talking about tearing down the temple and they're thinking it's physical. They're thinking that it has to do with the structure. And so they're going, oh, this is this is a capital offense. He's going to destroy a worship place. And Jesus is speaking about himself. And because their testimonies still don't match at this point, that set of testimonies gets thrown out. Which sets up this new line of questioning from Caiaphas. He's had enough. So he goes straight to the heart of the matter. Did you see it in the verse? It's still very, he says, he just asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus answers, I am. This is the first time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus declares he is the Messiah. And what happens? Well, Caiaphas actually rips his robes in half, which the high priest is supposed to do in the event that he's ever faced, face to face, face to face, face to face, whatever. He, whenever he is confronted with blasphemy, if blasphemy is there, he rips his robes in half. And so he did that. No more witnesses necessary. This is blasphemy. He just claimed to be God. What's the penalty of that? It is death. But nothing is official at this point. Why? Because it's pretty much an unofficial trial. It's an unofficial preliminary kangaroo court hearing is what it is. It's not official. They all realize it. And it's during this time that Jesus is spit on and struck with fist. And now we're going to continue. Verse 66. 
While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's servants came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were also with that Nazarene, Jesus. Now, let me pause for a minute here, because if you uh, think through how everything was set up, Peter would have actually literally walked into this courtyard where the trial would have been going on probably in an upstairs area somewhere in a square, literally a square surrounding there. And he's right there in the middle. All right, moving on. But again, he uh, when the servant saw him, uh, uh, where are we? I think I just lost a page here. I apologize. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the temple police, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found could find none. And I've already read that. While Peter was in the courtyard, verse 66, one of the high priest servants came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were also with you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the servant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. And he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he began to weep. So so Mark's inserted this narrative here in the trial regarding Peter and what he's going through. And initially, right, we remember last week, everybody had left Jesus, right? Even, you know, as tradition has it, even Mark, who apparently might just well have been the guy whose clothes got ripped off of him and he runs away naked and there's nobody left. But we find eventually Peter made his way to where the action was taking place. Nobody else did that, but Peter did. Well, we got to give him that. A lot of times we rip on him for the whole rooster crowing and deny, deny that. Hey, at least... Peter came back, right? Everybody else is not there. Everyone's deserted the scene. But Peter's recognized. His Galilean accent gives him away. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, the Jones are a part of our small group. And if they started talking right now, their accent would give them away. They're not native Texans, right? They're, they're from the UK. And so uh, in, in that same way, uh, certainly uh, Peter, he, his accent has been... It has marked him. And he's pointed out and intimidated by none other than a little girl. <laughs> it is burly fisherman, right? And, and he's intimidated by this little girl because he knows where it could go or thinks about where it might go. And he denies even knowing Jesus three times and the rooster crows twice. And in Luke, the scene describes, this is amazing to me, but in Luke, the scene actually describes Jesus somewhere up on one of those four areas there in the midst of that whole trial, being slapped around, being beaten up and coming into eye contact with Peter as he is making that denial. First time they've looked at each other eye to eye since the garden. Since Peter's going, no, 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 not me. I'm, I'm here with you. I'm here with you all the way. No way. Uh-uh. And their eyes meet. And Peter is overwhelmed. And, and we'll come back to this. Chapter 15. 
As soon as it was morning, the chief priest had a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin. And after tying Jesus up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said it. And the chief priest began to accuse him of many things. Then Pilate questioned him again, are you not answering anything? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer anything, so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, it was Pilate's custom to release for a people, a prisoner they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. So Pilate answered them, you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted, crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted, crucify him all the more. Then willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. What's happened here is the sun is about to rise and Jesus is brought back to the 71 member Sanhedrin. But this time it's official. It's not a preliminary hearing. This is the real deal. This counts. And he's asked again if he is the Christ, the son of God. And again, he affirms their question and the verdict official. He is condemned now to Pilate. Now, the Jews could self-govern themselves. Uh, they could find people guilty of murder. They could do all kinds of things. But the one thing they couldn't do, they couldn't actually kill somebody. They couldn't, they could pronounce the death sentence, but they didn't have the power to execute. Only the Romans did. Now for a bit of challenge, the Roman law didn't actually punish blasphemy. There was a little bit of a Quandary right there at that point, right? So instead, they inserted the charge of what? Of treason. Making out Jesus is a traitor. Because why? Because he claimed to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews for the Romans. Wait, what? There's only one king. What are you thinking here? Treasonous. So Jesus is taken to Fortress Antonia to appear before Pilate. Pilate hated the Jews. He typically hung out around Caesarea, but he was in Jerusalem. Why? Because of the festival. Remember last week we were talking about it. Uh, riots would happen at times, all this uh, festive celebration. The Jews would get all nationalistic and excited. And so the bigwigs from all the area would show up there just to make sure that everything stayed nice and tidy. So he's there. He's hanging out. He's helping maintain order. He had sole responsibility for the for the Roman court's decisions. And after a short interrogation, he discovers that Jesus is Galilean. <laughs> and so uh, there'd been a little bit of bad blood between he and, uh, and, and, uh, and Herod Antipas. And so here's what happens. He sends him over to Herod. Why? Because Herod's also in town. And Herod is actually over the Galilean district. So Pilate... He's already struggling with the whole Jesus thing. I mean, what's going on with this guy anyway? And he just kind of passes the buck, but he kind of kills two birds with one stone. He not only passes the buck so he doesn't have to deal with it, but he also passes it to somebody who will see that as, all right, well, he acknowledges that he's in my district and I'm in charge of this and life is good. And so you know, he's kind of he's buttering up somebody that he's had some problems with. Works fine. Only problem is, still, it winds back up in Pilate's lap. Why? Because 
Herod really didn't have to deal with it either. As a matter of fact, he just thought it was kind of a nice little parlor trick. He had heard Jesus doing some miracles or whatever, so he asked Jesus to do some in front of him, right? And Jesus doesn't do it. He's not on show. And Herod just kind of gets ticked with that and says, you know what? Get out of here. So he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, this time, is now wrestling even more significantly with the decision to have Jesus executed. To the point of really recognizing the tradition. You know, it's amnesty. I can, <laughs> I can let somebody go. Thinking the crowd might release Jesus. So he enters Barabbas. And this dude, he's a prisoner with a death sentence. He is a, um, He's a he's a he's a rebel. He's a freedom fighter. He's an insurrectionist. And what Pilate probably thought, well, we can't know everything that's going on in his mind, but he's probably thinking, here's this attempt for me to show my contempt for the Jews. I know why the Jewish leaders sent him my direction. It's not because they respect me. As a matter of fact, I think it'd be pretty interesting if the crowd just kind of let Jesus go. I mean, somebody can go. What if the crowd let him go? It'd be like, you know, I'd be stepping all over these Jewish leaders right in front of their people. How cool would that be? The only problem is it kind of backfires on him. He didn't keep in mind exactly how much pull the chief priest had with all of the people because they had roused up the crowd to the point that what happens when the crowd says crucify him and give us Barabbas? So Pilate succumbs to the pressure. And interestingly enough, if you want to go back, you could put a note in your notes if you wanted to. But in chapter 10 of Mark, several weeks ago when we were reading, Jesus prophesied about this. He prophesied about this event and how he would be condemned by his own people and then crucified by the Gentiles. Well, that's exactly what would happen. And as we read on. We move into verse 16. And the soldiers led him away into the courtyard, that is headquarters, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying him homage. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon, Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge written against him was... They they crucified two criminals, verse 27, with him, one on his right and one on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled that says he was counted among outlaws. Those who have passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priest with the scribes were mocking him to one another and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, 
which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. So he's handed over to the military to be prepared for execution and he's stripped and beaten and mocked and crucified on a cross. And his clothes are gambled away and he is insulted and he hangs there from nine in the morning till noon. And then there's darkness. And after about three more hours, around three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at this point, all of our sin, all of the sin is laid upon him. And for the first time ever, in the history of ever, Jesus is incapable of sensing that his father is there. And it's our sin. It's, it's, it's our sin that has created that barrier. It's the reality of alienation that our sin causes between us and our creator. Verse 37. But Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man really was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they would follow him and help him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus gives out this loud cry, and it's unusual. Because in crucifixions, typically life was snuffed out in this mode of execution in a slow way. The blood stops circulating to the criminal's heart and brain, and eventually they lapse into a coma after two or three days, but not in this case, not in Jesus' case. And he cries out, and that's unusual, and it catches the attention of Pilate, and Jesus breathes his last. And in the temple veil, the temple curtain is torn in two, not from bottom to top as if somebody went in and ripped it, but from top to bottom. The passive verb here of torn is used, emphasizing this was God's action, removing the barrier that had been in place between the people and the Holy of Holies. You know, The high priest could go in once a year. Well, now we enter into God's presence anytime, anywhere. Because in this moment, symbolically, God is showing us the ultimate high priest is making the ultimate sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice for us. And there's this centurion, a Gentile Roman officer. He's a centurion, which means he's a commander of a hundred soldiers. He's in charge of an execution squad. And he confesses, this man really was God's son. Did he fully understand it? Did he become a disciple? I, I don't know. I, we don't know exactly. Something caught his eye. Maybe it was how Jesus was dying. Maybe it was the way the darkness happened. I don't know. I don't know. The movie hasn't come out for this yet. I don't know. Maybe they'll show us on Monday. Verse 42. 
When it was already evening, because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he bought some fine linen, he took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And then he placed him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Now Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was placed. And now we pause after having read more scripture than any service in the history of Rock Point, probably. Joseph, he probably lived in Jerusalem. He was wealthy. He was a reputable member of the Sanhedrin. Who's the Sanhedrin? Well, they're the ones behind the crucifixion. The Gospel of Luke mentions that he wasn't in favor of the execution, that he was actually looking forward to the kingdom of God. In John 19, it describes Joseph as a disciple of Jesus. Here's what's crazy. Joseph makes, as it's described here in Mark, a bold move. I mean, just think about it for a minute. He's with the band that helped get Jesus on the cross. And now he's standing there going, I'll be the one to help. I'll be the. It's like, you know, we we talk all the time about what happens in this place right about here where I'm standing. If you've never been here before when we've baptized, what are people doing? They go down, they come back up. It's all about going public, right, with your profession of faith. Can I just say in that moment, (laughs) Joseph goes public big time. And so we end this part of Mark's narrative with Jesus being placed in the grave. And when is he placed on the grave? Up, oh, let's go back. He gets placed on the grave on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On a day where the Jewish people are sweeping leaven from their homes to symbolize our attempt to ruthlessly root out sin from our lives, Jesus' body lays in a grave, unleavened, without sin. As the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of the world. You think God didn't know what he was doing? This is more than a detail in the crucifixion story. The reason his blood could cover us. With the Passover experience is because his life was sinless. His blood was effective because his life was without sin. So if the Passover reminds us of God's ultimate sacrifice for our deliverance, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us of how meticulously God has cleansed us. Jesus not only delivers us from sin by being upon the cross, He desires to continually cleanse us from it. I think the first part speaks of our salvation. The second part speaks of the word that we would use there would be our sanctification. This is, the why, Paul, this is why Paul was so adamant about the Corinthian believers' callous attitude toward the sin in their lives. He speaks to them uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians in a way that 
is is actually speaking about the unleavened bread and he uses it as a metaphor. And he likens it to me being in my garage this weekend and sweeping everything out. And then at the end of the evening, when it's all said and done, I go back outside. I take the hold on a second. I take the dustpan. It all looks good. All of it's outside of my garage. I sweep it all up and then I go. There you go. Oh, yeah, that's looking good. Well, that would be insane, wouldn't it? That'd be craziness. Well, Paul is actually speaking about just how crazy that is. And he likens it to the unleavened bread metaphor. Listen, first Corinthians five, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I think that sadly, we too often find ourselves wanting to celebrate Passover, but skip the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We want to be saved. But we're not real sure about going through that meticulous process of sanctification. And so we get into this argument about, well, are people really saved or are they not? Well, did that really happen or did it not? Well, look at how they're living. Well, look at how I'm living. Well, look at how we all live. And I think sometimes it just comes down to we're very okay with death on a cross for me to escape hell and go to heaven. But we struggle with that whole sweeping the sin out of our lives, this continual sanctification. We want to be delivered from sin, but we're not sure we want to get rid of it because we like some of them too much. And we try and we try and we try and we try and we and we and we shuffle it out of the garage. And then crazy enough, we just scoop it right back in and pour it all over the place. But we are called to be holy as God is holy and to rid our lives of sin. And the beauty is this is not something that we can do apart from Christ. That he is in that moment with us. It is something we do with him. We can't rid it of ourselves. We are called to cleansing by a confession. And confession is the act of identifying sin in in our lives and repenting of it. And claiming the work of Christ and cleansing it and moving forward. And I would say today, what we can do is we can celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread by doing a bit of a white glove examination. You know, in the military, how they do that, right? They put the white glove on and they're like checking for, is there there anything there? What's, What's going on? Did you really get it clean? And I think in this moment, the Feast of Unleavened Bread points our attention in that direction. It's a feast that celebrates cleansing and confession. God coordinated it all to grab the Jewish people's attention, to grab our attention. That it's not just the Passover, but it's the Passover and. Because the holy, sinless Son of God lay there pointing to us. Listen, 
This is how you do it. Not in your own efforts. What you're trying to do with that broom is not working. It's what I've done on your behalf. So what are the tools for cleansing? We know what the tools are when we're doing it with our garage. It's a dustpan and a, and a, you know, we got that. But how does it look when we're going into the presence of God Almighty? We get honest, number one. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We, got, we just got to get honest. We see it for what it is. We also confess. First Chronicles 21.8 says, I have sinned greatly by doing this. That's David's declaration. He's acknowledging, yes, I have done this. And then I repent. Acts 3.19 says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That repent and turn, it's not two things, it's actually one. In the Greek, that, that actually works together in one fail swoop of I'm moving and 180 degree turn, I am moving back to God. I'm going to get honest, I'm going to confess before Him. I'm going to turn to God. And number four, I'm going to walk in thankfulness. When that repentance comes, I love this verse in Acts 3, 19. When it comes, what happens after that? That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Should you close your eyes for a minute? And just pretend like you're the only one in the room. I know there's 150 of us or so in here. And depending on what faith you've come out of or been a part of, confession for you may have been such a very personal thing that it was just you and a priest. Or maybe it was, uh, I, I don't know. And so to consider confession and, and, and repentance in a room with a bunch of people that you may or may not know, and how does that work? And is there going to be a microphone? And are we supposed to pass it around? Or how do we do it? No. This is between you and God. But before we move that direction, with your eyes closed, I just wanted you to consider one person. Consider Peter. Eye to eye with Jesus at the worst possible moment. And yet after that third denial, his repentance creates the greatest comeback I think we've ever seen from a disciple. Because you know, it's not the last time that Jesus and Peter would be eye to eye on this earth. Jesus would resurrect. And just as we discovered Last week, he would meet the disciples on the beach in Galilee. And while he's there, he has this encounter with Peter. And in a sense, gives Peter kind of a moment to redeem himself. <laughs> really, it's Jesus' redemption in Peter. As Peter boldly proclaims his love for Jesus. and gets another moment.
another opportunity, another chance. I would say Peter gives me great hope. (laughs) Because what Jesus just offered Peter after what happened in that courtyard... The beauty of confession and repentance is that on the other side, we have the affection and affirmation of a Savior who says, by the way, don't bring that up again. That's already, that's already done. That's over. So the band's going to play. We'll have communion as you since moved to do so. But I just wanted this to be a moment where we allow God to do a clean sweep. Is there anything that you need to visit with God about? As we listen and as we celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, through repentance, through confession, through thanksgiving.